Hello? Is this working? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, hi, guys. Welcome to um, Why the Decolonize University. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Neela Mamana. I'm one of the co-founders of the Decolonizing Our Minds Society. Um, we wanted to have this discussion tonight um, in light of all the kind of movements on decolonial decoloniality that have been happening um, over the past couple of years. Um, so there's Why is My Curriculum? Why Roads Must Fall? And obviously the Decolonizing Our Minds Society, amongst other organizations. Um, we wanted to have this discussion today in light of SOAS's centenary year next year. Um, and SOAS is going to obviously brand itself um, in quite a positive light. But we want to examine the historical legacy of SOAS and really question it. Um, SOAS calls itself the first post-colonial institution in the West. Um, yet if people who do study at SOAS, um, they will probably understand that the curriculum is still quite Eurocentric and there's still quite a long way to go. Um, yeah. Um, oh, so um, part of the campaign that we're running, it's called Decolonizing SOAS, um, Confronting the White Institution. Um, and so far, we've got some funding to make um, a few short films um, confronting these issues. So if anyone does want to be a part of them, just talk to me or um, other members of Decolonizing Our Minds who are here today. Um, we're also putting on events like this, um, and we plan on um, hosting a lot more discussions um, to critique the centenary um, next year. Um, yeah, so I'll hand it over to Karim now, who will be chairing. Um, he is a lecturer in international studies at SOAS, and his research focuses on Eurocentricism in international relations and how this Eurocentricism can be subverted in both theory and history. In particular, his research has explored the ways in which non-European societies have been constitutive of a European social relations in the early modern period. Um, oh, I forgot to say, I'm also running um, for a co-presidency position. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, a little plug in there um, for the new uh, position of equality and liberation and kind of what we're going to be discussing today links to that role. Um, so obviously equality and liberation in an institution like SOAS or just in an institution like a university um, has its limits, but um, hopefully um, we can kind of deconstruct these and um, yeah, put on more events, etc. Um, yeah, so feel free to vote for me and if any of your friends <laughs> come to SOAS and let them know as well. Yeah, thank you. Hello, good evening everyone. Um, thanks for coming. It's great to be in such a packed hall to discuss why decolonize the university. Um, as Neelam already mentioned, my name is uh, Keram Nishanjolu. Um, I'm a lecturer here at SOAS. Um, and today I'm joined by four wonderful speakers to help us analyze this question, why decolonize the university. I'm going to allow each of them to introduce themselves. So we'll start to my left and then go across. Uh, my name's... Oh. My name is Adam Elliott Cooper. Um, I'm a PhD student at Oxford University, um, and I'm a former member of the philosophy department at UCL. Um, and I was involved in a campaign called Why Is My Curriculum White, which began about a year or so ago. Uh, I'm Mira Sabaratnam. I'm a lecturer in international relations here at SOAS. Uh, I'm also the co convener of the British International Studies Association uh, Colonial, Postcolonial, Decolonial Working Group. Hi, uh, I'm Rahul Rao. I teach politics at SOAS, um, and I work on international relations theory and gender and sexuality. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Simukai Chigudu. I'm a PhD student at Oxford University in International Development. Um, I was one of the founding members of the Roads Most Four movement there, um, although today I'm a last-minute addition to the panels. Unfortunately, my colleague, who was supposed to be speaking, uh, can no longer make it. 
Yeah, I should, I should add, I just want to apologise on behalf of Dahlia, who um, had to cancel last minute due to um, unforeseen circumstances. So apologies on her behalf, but very glad to have Simakaya here, and thanks for, for joining the panel at such short notice. Um, I'm going to, actually, before, before we properly get into the event, I just wanted to just raise um, um, a serious issue that's arisen in this past week or so. Um, someone who um, a few of us know, and a few of you will be aware of this already, um, Lukman Onikisi, has, um, faces potential deportation from the UK. He is, um, um, I, mean, I think it's particularly worth raising today because he's been at the heart of campaigning um, at the University of Sussex for an anti-racist, um, decolonized, unwhitened curriculum there. Um, he faces deportation and potentially um, this could be fatal because he has an illness that cannot be treated in, in, in his uh, point of destination in Nigeria. Um, there is a campaign for Lukman, and if you Google campaign for Lukman, um, you can find some information of how you can contribute to this campaign. Um, there is in particular a petition that people want to get to uh, 10,000 um, signatories so they can be raised in Parliament and there is also a crowdfunder to help him with his legal fees and other elements of the campaign so please do check that out and please do help if you can. Um, okay I'm going to just briefly start by the, um, describing the structure of this discussion. We wanted to make it as much of a dialogue and as much of a participatory event as possible so rather than each person having say five ten minutes to give their own presentation and then you ask questions what we're going to do instead well, is that I'm going to raise some prompting questions, some discussion points that all of the panelists will respond to, will briefly respond to, and then we're going to have the floor open for um, any contributions from yourselves. Um, any contributions, any comments, any questions? Um, we'll take a few, and then the panelists will have an opportunity to respond, and then we'll carry on with a new discussion point. So hopefully that will um, enable some sort of back and forth, not only between the panelists, but also yourselves. So if you have any questions or comments that you'd like to raise, just please raise your hand as clearly as possible, and I'll do my best to see you. And then we've got a couple of roaming mics with Zane, who's seated over there in a very throne-like manner, I must say. Um, <laughs> um, and he'll come over, and he'll come over with, the, with the mics. Um, and yeah, yeah, just, just try to be as clear with your, with your hand as possible. When you sort of like half-assed hands, I probably won't be able to see. So yeah, and if I miss you, do like, don't feel free to like jump up and wave your hands on. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, to give an overview, a very brief overview of some of the things we'll be looking, and the order that, looking at and the order that we'll be looking at them in, um, we're firstly going to look at this question of why decolonize the university. Um, Specifically, we're going to look at the concept of decolonization. Why, why has decolonization or decolonize been at the heart of a lot of campus movements against, um, against what might be called the white curriculum, the white institution? Um, from there, we'll go on to look at the place of decolonial praxis <coughs> in Britain as a historical center of empire and colonialism. Um, and how does this relate to events in the global south? And we might look in particular at concrete examples such as the Roads Must Fall movement in South Africa, Fees Must Fall in South Africa, and also what's going on in India with the JNU. Um, honing back in on the local, we will also be looking at how decolonial activism within the university relates to spaces and communities immediately outside of the university. How do uni campaigns link up with local community campaigns? Um, and we'll also, if we have time, try to look at what concrete steps can be taken, how do we organize? Okay, so let's start with that first question then, um, and here is where the panelists come in. Why decolonization? 
why now? Why do um, campaigns such as Why Is My Curriculum White Rose Must Fall decolonizing our mind society here at SOAS? Why have all of these movements placed decolonizing at the heart of, at the heart of their politics? Mira, can we start with you? <laughs> uh, sure, yeah, please do come and sit, sit down if, um, if you've just arrived. Uh, so why decolonize and why now? So I think I'll park the question of what decolonizing actually means uh, for a second and think about why now. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that um, the impulse to decolonize and to engage in anti-racism activism is not new, right? I mean, there have been generations before this one that have done this, uh, that have sought to challenge uh, representational issues, questions of racism uh, on campus. But there's a particular energy and vigor about this historical moment. I think part of this is a generational effect. I mean, just speaking from the point of view of um, uh, someone who's second generation uh, ethnic minority in Britain, there is a sense that amongst second-generation immigrants in particular, the, the stakes are different from uh, the politics of, of your parents. With your parents, maybe it was very much about assimilation and integration, and there's something about later generations that have become more assertive about trying to embrace uh, their identities and what that means in the face of ongoing racism. And in some sense, this is about the failure of a uh, liberal prohibition on legalized forms of racism to address structured inequalities uh, in terms of life experiences, outcomes, attainments, and that sort of thing. Well, yeah, I don't know about this first generation, second generation thing, uh, in part because I feel like the first generation in whatever non-genealogy that I will produce. Um, but I guess, Partly what I'm thinking about and the way I've been thinking about this um, issue is in relation to coming to Britain as a Rhodes Scholar uh, and being extremely conflicted about that from the very day I applied um, and, and therefore having a very particular relationship with the question of decolonization. I don't want to anticipate too much of what Simukai will say, but... Um, I think one of the one one really one question that's occurred to me is why is this happening now? Why didn't it happen 15 years ago when uh, you know the people I came to Oxford with first arrived? Um, and I think there are some very particular factors around the Rhodes Trust, which will sound very parochial in this audience, but I think do have wider ramifications. And the 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 issue that I think. Um, you know, in 2001, the Rhodes Trust was almost turning 100 years old. And one of the things it did to rebrand itself, if you like, was it entered into a partnership with Nelson Mandela, with the Mandela Foundation. Um, and this was also symbolized in the, in the halls of the Rhodes um, Trust in Oxford by these gigantic tapestries, one of Rhodes and one of Mandela, uh, as sort of the architects of South Africa, almost positing a kind of grotesque equivalence between these two figures. Um, but I think part of what made it very difficult to challenge the Rhodes Trust at that time was because Mandela lent his approval to this partnership. Um, and, and, you know, the, the politics of that was very ambivalent. On the one hand, it spared South Africa a great deal of violence in its transition from apartheid. On the other hand, it postponed, delayed, deferred a reckoning with the legacies of apartheid. 
Uh, and so what we are in is we are in, in a, in a post-Mandela moment, which has had very particular ramifications in South Africa, which are now reverberating here. So I guess the larger point I want to make is that in this situation, really South Africa has been a center and we are the periphery, feeling the, re the reverberations coming from the global south. Um, so I apologize for that very parochial story, but I hope you'll appreciate that it is related to larger shifts in global politics. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, I think this is a, probably a good moment for me to come in because I think um, speaking from the perspective of Roads Must Fall in Oxford, uh, and again, I do apologize in advance because my, my segue is also going to seem a little bit uh, parochial, uh, but anybody who's ever wandered through the cloisters of Oxford uh, will notice that the university is not in any way short of tributes uh, to the great men of empire or to slaveholders, be it Curzon or Codrington or Jowett. Um, the list is virtually endless. Uh, but I do think the fact that there is this post-Mandela moment, if I can borrow Rahul's phrase, um, that is intimately entwined with the expectations of what um, decolonization after apartheid would look like. Um, and I think the failure on certain... Um, on the delivery of certain promises is sharply articulated in a university like um, UCT, the University of Cape Town. Um, the kind of racialized social and economic uh, inequalities exist in quite a profound way. Um, the whiteness of the curriculum is felt quite acutely, um, as indeed are the statues and tributes to men like Rhodes. So when the movement began there, um, I think in Oxford, we saw this convergence of a particular moment in South Africa having a striking resonance with us. Um, there are a number of South African, um, uh, South African students and Rhodes scholars um, at Oxford. Uh, I myself am from uh, Zimbabwe or Rhodesia, if you like. Um, and there just seemed to be enough people with a concern about and an interest in uh, what was happening in South Africa to point out the fact that actually maybe this is an opportune time um, to highlight legacies of imperialism within Oxford University, how they're celebrated and not reflected upon in any critical way. Um, and I think um, that that was kind of the, the, the point of departure. It was born in explicit solidarity what, to what was happening uh, in Cape Town. How it has emerged since then is also an artifact of kind of contingency and specific events, but we could perhaps come to that uh, in due course. Thank you, Adam. Um, obviously, everyone else has stolen my ideas. Um, but I guess there's um, two things um, that I thought about. One is the fact that Previous generations often use the language of anti-racism, and I think in many ways the language of anti-racism has been very cleverly co-opted by the state um, and by many of its institutions. They've been co-opted into uh, the structures of equality and diversity, um, they've been, um, and they've been co-opted into I mean, in, in two ways. Number one, um, through the idea of putting more black faces in high places. Um, I think um, Baroness Amos is a good example of that. Um, and also, I think this idea that racism is, is, pers is, uh, is down to personal prejudice, right? Um, and so, so it's, it's been neoliberalism and the state has been very, very clever in co-opting the kind of language of anti-racism and incorporating it into its structures of power. And I think the language of decolonization is far more difficult to co-opt in that very same way because it is far more difficult to separate the language of decolonization from structure than it is the language of anti-racism. 
Um, I think the second thing about, that's important about the term decolonization um, is that it, sp it speaks very directly to the international. It speaks very directly to the international, both historically, um, but it speaks di directly to the international, I think, in the contemporary period as well. So we can begin to think, we can begin to link the whiteness of our curriculum, the whiteness of um, uh, the, the people in positions of power um, within our university, with the ways in which um, weapons manufacturers, with the pharmaceutical industry, with um, uh, financial, the financial services and what have you, um, are deeply implicated into the structures of our institutions as well and the, and the effect that that has um, on the peoples of the global south. Thanks. Would anyone on, um, from the audience like to come in and make a point, comment, question on anything anyone says? Oh, okay. Um, well, one, one thing I, um, I, can, I can raise a question. One thing um, that I was interested in um, was the way in which each of you highlighted the way in which, I guess, what we're experiencing in the UK right now is a reverberation from movements that were prefigured in the, in the Global South. So uh, one thing that I kind of wanted to ask, and I think this is a useful question to ask whenever talking about decolonizing in the context of the UK, is why talk about decolonizing at all in the context of a country that wasn't actually colonized, right? A colonizer, yes, but wasn't actually colonized. What, um, what is it about this country that we can draw some, um, I guess, equivalence with movements in the Global South on the one hand, and on the other hand, what is specific to Britain what is specific to the conditions in Britain today, specifically today, that call for decolonizing um, rather than, say, say, diversifying? I think you've all touched on this, but maybe, maybe can hone in on it with a bit more specificity, if possible. Um, Adam, before anyone steals your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I guess... The first thing is that Britain has always been a centre of, historically of anti-imperialist organising. Um, probably one of the best examples of this would be the uh, Pan-African Congresses, which took place here in the centre of empire. And because Britain is the historic centre of empire, it won the, uh, the, the uh, competitive Col European competitive colonisation, you know, beat France and the Dutch and everyone else. Um, and it came out on top and it meant that it was a magnet for colonised peoples um, to meet and to organise and to discuss and to, and, to, and to plan resistance. And I think, I hope that we can, we can continue that tradition. Um, I think the second thing is that Britain, I think, is possibly one of the most reactionary slash least revolutionary nations on the face of the planet, after maybe Australia. Um, <laughs> and... And I, think that's for, and I think that's for good reason. Um, and, it's, and I think that's intrinsically linked to the fact that... Um, that it's the historic centre of empire. But I think our role is so incredibly important because as the historic centre of empire, causing disruptions in the way in which it functions has enormous reverberations in the rest of the world. And so I think that's another reason. Um, and I'll, yeah, I'll leave it there. So, okay. Um, yeah, so I think that Adam has kind of eloquently articulated some of the reasons why that language is so potent and so cogent. Um, certainly within the, the Rhodes Must Fall perspective uh, in, in Oxford, the term decolonize, I think, was linked to two things. One, it was um, that statement of solidarity with what was happening in Cape Town. It's also the fact that uh, a number of the people involved are coming from countries in the global south and do feel colonized when they're at Oxford. So there was something about speaking directly to the, um, to the institution in that respect. Um, and I perhaps at a, a slightly broader point, I think um, given the questions around curriculum specifically, um, I think there is, there is a sense in which the kind of political 
economy of knowledge production, right? So um, which kind of universities are producing publications, which journals, um, what are our kind of sources for knowing and understanding the world are very often steeped within Western kind of epistemologies and traditions. So coming at it, say, from an Africanist perspective, if our whole way of telling the story of, say, African history is structured around the triad of pre-colonial, colonial, and post-colonial, and this is the way in which uh, we engage with these questions in, in the classroom, say, at Oxford, there is this kind of sense in which, you know, do we need to decolonize um, knowledge production. Um, and so I think that, 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 that the term has a certain kind of uh, resonance in a number of different arenas. Um, having said all of that, um, I'd also say that um, Roads Must Fall is itself a kind of protest movement. Um, and very often within protest movements, you're trying to condense a number of different uh, sentiments into something that's kind of uh, pithy and powerful. Uh, and in that respect, I think the term uh, decolonize is really a shorthand or a manifold metaphor. Um, and what it's really signaling is trying to critique certain, uh, certain kind of hegemony, a certain kind of white uh, hegemony. And that's variably called imperialist. It's various, variably called colonialist. So I'm not sure that decolonization is necessarily, from a kind of intellectual or analytical perspective, the best term to use in all circumstances. Um, but I think it's trying to condense all of these different uh, sentiments and, and, and challenging this hegemony. Well, some, something that I found really interesting with the use of decolonization or the decolonial or decolonize um, in recent movements is the way that, I mean, of course, it initially began as a call um, in political movements against colonialism only to eventually be, I guess, subsumed by the university in some way and used as a category or a concept or a method through which to do scholarly work only for it to re-emerge again as, as, a, as a political call, um, which I think is really interesting. But yeah, uh, Rahul. Yeah, I guess I think of post-colonial, decolonial, not as referring to particular parts of the world, but as a condition um, and as a condition, it, it matters to both sides of that equation. Um, I, I think of the way Fanon writes about the condition of colonialism as something that affected both colonizer and colonized. And therefore, decolonization has to, has to uh, have implications for both parties in that transaction. And therefore, it matters as much to the colonizer as to the colonized. Um, the colonizer is as much in need of decolonization as the colonized. The, the second point I would make is that the fact of migration also makes this increasingly relevant. Um, the fact that people are coming to Britain from other parts of the world, the composition of the country is changing. This, of course, arouses new anxieties among the indigenous, whoever that is, um, and, and, um, and also among migrants <coughs> themselves, who uh, I think, you know, as a migrant, you can come here like via Naipaul and think, oh, I'm a poor copy of this place and feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. Or you can come here and think, uh, oh my gosh, I'm bumping up against all these icons who shaped the politics of the place I came from, which sort of makes me a sort of part shareholder in this place. Not a visitor, not a guest, but somebody who has a claim. Um, and I think that alternative way of thinking about migration uh, has also spurred some of the decolonization energy in the former imperial center. Yeah, um, I would just uh, endorse what my, my colleagues have said here. I mean, I think one of the most interesting challenges that has come out of 
decolonial theory uh, recently is the insight that modernity itself is fundamentally colonial. And in this sense, the idea of what colonialism is and what decolonizing means um, is given an entirely new set of uh, coordinates rather than simply you know, the removal of formal control of one uh, polity by another. To think of it as something which is fundamentally structured, how the world works, how the economy is structured, how we organize our knowledge about the world, the categories that we use, the concepts that we use, the imagery that we use, the entire plane of intelligibility of modernity is being suffused throughout with the legacies of a particular kind of hierarchy. Uh, that idea that there is that modernity slash coloniality is one kind of configuration, that idea is incredibly important in thinking about what decolonizing uh, means today and what the decolonial impulse is about. Uh, that, makes the, that makes the project of decolonization, on the one hand, uh, incredibly utopian, right? If it's the fact that coloniality is inscribed everywhere into into everything then the project of decolonizing something is not just you know more black faces in high places uh, but a fundamental rethinking of how we understand the world how we approach it the common sense we have about the economy about uh, foreign policy and so on and I think once you start to see the world through that lens uh, a whole series of interesting things uh, unfold themselves both in higher education uh, and elsewhere but I would seriously um, endorse what Rahul was saying and uh, say that the colonizer carries as many of these uh, hangovers or, or ongoing uh, self-understandings as the colonized. Yeah, just, just to add on, um, follow up a couple of points made by Rahul, I think it's, it's worth noting that in the particular political context that we're experiencing right now in Britain with increasing... Um, racism, increasing anti-migration rhetoric, discourse and action, um, I think there's a certain necessity around anti-racist organising that has genuinely be take, been taken up by a lot of activists. And so we see, for example, um, the wonderful movement for justice organising around the closure of Yarswood Detention Centre, which holds um, um, women asylum seekers um, in detention, in effectively a prison. Um, we've seen also the centrality of uh, women of colour in organisations such as Sisters Uncut, and I don't think any of this is a coincidence, and I don't think it's a coincidence that there are calls for decolonisation in a context where you have such vibrant activism coming from people of colour in particular. Um, any, any questions, any comments that people want to raise? Um, so there's two over here, so we'll take them in turn. Um, person at the back first, and then, and then James. And then... And then over there, um, at the back. So just just down here, there's the person who's got their hand up there. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Jan. I'm in the Center for Gender Studies, and I just sort of wanted to maybe add another dimension to the discussion about why now and sort of talking about the modernity and even maybe the generation and migration, I think, you know, I would just like to hear your thoughts about the, the timing in regards to the crisis, the economic crisis. Because if we look at sort of the example of South Africa and sort of you saying that the, the promise of transformation didn't deliver and that especially the youth is not receiving the benefits that they were hoping to get um, on the socioeconomic level, and we sort of see a lot of young people here sort of having the same frustrations with the economy. 
you know, do you, do you think that, you know, the sort of the crisis of the capitalism and neoliberal project um, is sort of the, the connecting point between, you know, countries, but also sort of pinpointing to the time now? So just any thoughts about, about that? Thank you. Uh, yeah, my question just coming out of the th um, what Adam said in relation to the potential for neoliberalism, the neoliberal university to co-opt um, anti-racism. Um, and I agree very much with what you said, you know, decolonizing is a lot harder to co-opt, but I don't think it's impossible to co-opt. So I'd like to ask you in what, what are the dangers in a way of, of sort of the possible commodification and disciplining of, um, uh, of decolonizing uh, colonization and I'm possibly I'm overstating this because in SOAS it feels a lot like a place where we commodify you know post-colonial decolonial approaches um, um, so maybe it's actually a lot less of a problem than I think but um, yes yeah, I'm, I'm sort of struggling with the idea that it because I think it's related to the issue of what the status of the classroom and the university is in, in wider social struggles because you could have a, a classroom which is an extremely radical space. You can have very radical conversations in it. This morning I taught a class on revolutionary war and got my students to plan the revolutionary takeover of a country um, you know, in, in groups. And it was great. But um, you know, afterwards they left and you know, they're paying their fees and they're all very happy and they'll fill out their servant, student surveys you know, very well. But is there a problem with how we're structuring the university as a pedagogical space that prevents that potential radical reform to curriculum or teaching from seeping out into a wider social struggle that we, and political struggle that we all want to see. And by the pillar, right, back row. Keep your hands up, while, if you keep your hand up while Zane's going around, thank you. Um, yeah, this is just a quick one. So, just to push on the point of modernity being suffused with kind of colonial hierarchy and that sort of thing and how colonialism is inscribed in everything, like what does a decolonized world look like? Um, yeah. We'll take one more over here. Um, can you have your hand up? Just down. Yeah. Thanks. I think my question might be quite quick because I think I overlap with the very first person that asked a question from the audience. And it was, you know, when you posited, you know, why the UK? I mean, for me, I wonder how much um, the decolonization um, um, activism can actually capture concerns about wider social inequality. We look at social mobility in the UK and it's worse, not better. It's, you know, over 30 years, we see less movements of, um, across different social classes. And those social classes are, you know, intersect with, um, you know, race, ethnicity, and immigration status. Um, but there's a wider issue here that, you know, when Adam spoke about the way that the, you know, what's different about the decolonization movements, it's, you know, that they take on board neoliberalism as the issue. And that's where I think that the decolonization projects have the space to actually talk about social inequality widely. Um, but I wonder what the panel think. Thanks. Uh, Rahul? Yeah. Um, <laughs> thought me by surprise, but <laughs> if that's the way we're going to play yeah. it. Um, Roulette. <laughs> I, 
I, I, I've been thinking about this, the, the questions about the relationship between uh, austerity and racism, for example. And I think one obvious connection is that um, the welfare state requires a certain degree of solidarity and sharing, and that that solidarity sometimes, but not always, comes from a, a sense of shared identification. Um, and that's where questions of race and ethnicity seem to become relevant, and particularly heightened in a time of austerity where people feel much less able to engage in those kinds of solidaristic sharing projects. Um, and so a lot of political activism in that moment has to provide an alternative narrative of what the sources of that deprivation are. Uh, it has to address issues like scapegoating uh, of the wrong people for the kinds of deprivation that people genuinely feel. Um, and I think those conversations are quite difficult to have because they require engaging with what we think of, often rightly, as racist constituencies. Uh, it requires taking that racist affect seriously uh, and trying to provide an alternative narrative for the genuine grievances that people might feel. Uh, but I'm also thinking about the valence of decolonization in the global south and in, in a place like India, which I've been very preoccupied thinking about in the last few weeks, particularly because of the ferment on university campuses there. And it reminds me that decolonization was not just a struggle against whiteness. It was also a struggle against various internal hierarchies of oppression, such as caste and class. Um, and if, if we um, deploy Partho Chatterjee's reading of the Indian independence movement as a passive revolution, he's using Gramsci's uh, term here, um, an arrested revolution, then that focuses our attention on the unfinished business of decolonization from the point of view of, for example, lower caste movements, Dalit movements in India, who in the context of decolonization were and are struggling both against uh, the whiteness of globality but also uh, uh, Hindu upper caste domination. Uh, and that is the nature of the decolonization struggle that is still unfolding um, in, in a place like India. Uh, just briefly, um, I think it's worth separating out maybe the questions um, into two chunks. There's um, a couple of questions on the wider context of the political economy and how this relates to questions of decolonizing. And then there are a couple of questions that relate to the specificity of the uni um, as a space in which to decolonize. So maybe let's, um, as Rahul has already started with that first component, the wider political economy, maybe a panelist could stick on, stick to that. Anyone want to jump in? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, actually, I was not going to talk about that. But, um, I just get the chance to jump in anyway. You have to be opportunistic when you decolonize uh, anything. Um, no, the, the, it, it was merely that I wanted to draw attention to, on the one hand, yes, there's neoliberalism, there's financial crisis, and that's pronouncing a lot of the antagonisms that Raoul was talking about. The other important global context, I think, for this present movement is the war on terror and the way that that has radically changed the nature of the political conversation over the last uh, 15 years. Um, it's, the, it's the case that, I mean, and you, you can see this if you study your anti-colonial thinkers from the 20th century, it's the case that empires have many different 
modes of operating. But one of the things that the war on terror has done is expose certain tensions, hypocrisies, insecurities in the way in which global power is hierarchically structured, which has uh, radicalized all kinds of people. It's pulled them in and out of different kinds of alignments. You see people uh, resigning from the Labour Party and finding different spaces and finding, you know, reconfiguring what it means to be on the left, reconfiguring what it means to think about one's relationship with the world. And it's also a time when um, more conservative articulations of what Western values are, and I use the scare quotes uh, very markedly, um, may, are making themselves known. And, and in this sense, what the government is doing with its whole British values agenda, as if no one in the world had ever thought about you know, rule of law or freedom before, right? Um, but what it's doing is... Uh, in some ways demonstrating its sense of insecurity about the stability of Western supremacy in the present world order. <coughs> okay. um, so maybe I'll, I'll focus a little bit more on the, more <coughs> on the specific question of uh, the relationship between decolonization in the university and this, this question of uh, co-option and some of the tensions that lie there. Uh, and I guess it's it's really worth underscoring um, that I think that there is there is a grand debate and there's also a very particular one. Um, and I, I doubt that this audience would need much uh, convincing to say that this is a very different kind of space to, to the one I'm at in, in Oxford. Um, so just by way of indication, the kind of response to Roads Must Fall in Oxford has, um, for, for, by people opposed to it, has been one of quite a lot of hostility. Um, you have the Conservative MP, Daniel Hennon, this again is not a surprise, um, and alumnus of Oriel College saying that roads must fall activists are a cretinous mob um, that is too dim to be at university. Um, you have uh, Will Hutton, the, the principal of Hartford College, um, saying that if it wasn't for the legacies of empire such as rule of law, constitutionalism, freedom of association, um, South Africa would descend into unaccountable despotism. And maybe this is something that the Rose Must Fall activists need to be aware of. Uh, you have the classicist Mary Beard uh, coming forward and saying that what we need to do is empower the Rhodes Must Fall activists enough so that when they look at the statue, uh, they can <laughs> appreciate it with some pride about the fact that they made it to Oxford and sort of carry on about their day. So I think in, <laughs> in Oxford, we're really quite a long way away <laughs> from decolonization um, being co-opted. And I mean, I say these things <laughs> slightly facetiously, but I think they do reveal something quite troubling um, about attitudes towards, attitudes towards race, attitudes towards power, um, and questions of who the university belongs to. Um, and maybe the last point I would highlight is the new, uh, actually maybe two, uh, the chancellor of the university, uh, Chris Patton, um, kind of conflated uh, in one of the kind of least intellectually rigorous moves I've ever heard made. He kind of uh, conflated uh, roads must fall in the statue with debates about free speech, trigger warnings, safe spaces, um, and it really made no sense. And it was just trying to shut down that whole discussion. Uh, similarly, the, the newly appointed uh, vice chancellor of the university, Louise Richardson, uh, has come out and said she feels that uh, RMF is trying to erase history and that she'll be working very closely with the governing body at Oriel College um, to deal with the question of the statue. And that really made me wonder, you know, um, in all of these debates from these senior figures at the university, um, 
the students and people engaged in this movement seem to be quite a secondary consideration. Uh, there seems to be more of a drive to preserve the institution's history and, and a perception of its legacy, to be more accountable to donors and the governing body, um, to think that we are a threat to its reputation, um, to think that our concerns are parochial and are the result of oversensitivity. Um, so I think that the, this has opened up a debate about what is the university for and who does it belong to. Um, I, yeah, just to add to the, the question about um, co-optation, I think it's a really important one. Um, and I think, I might be wrong, but I think there's broadly two ways in which the language of decolonisation can be co-opted. Um, and I, I guess I'm thinking about the ways in which the language of black power has been co-opted in the United States. And I think it's, the first is through um, uh, treating it as a historic uh, phenomena. Uh, black power is this thing that happened quite some time ago, and, you know, it was kind of cool and everything, um, but we don't really need it anymore. But it's really quite important to study. Um, and so let's study it and let's discuss it in the classroom, et cetera, et cetera. The second way of um, um, uh, co-opting it is, is making sure it remains purely an intellectual exercise, right? So let's theorise and theorise and theorise and theorise and theorise decoloniality to the point that any normal person can't understand what anyone is saying when they read something about decoloniality. Um, and I think that bringing the language of decoloniality out of these historic and purely intellectual spaces and into the, and into the kind of activism that we're doing today that speaks to the current foreign policy of this nation and the current economic foreign policy of this nation and the current immigration policies and the ways in which um, uh, uh, migrants are treated in this country make, turns decoloniality in, from something which is either a historic or be purely intellectual to something which is very much material and very much urgent and in the, and in the here and now. Um, the second thing about um, uh, social issues, um, about um, issues relating to social mobility, immigration status, these types of things. I think that terms like social mobility, immigration status were, is the language of the state, and in many ways is the language of empire. And I think while the empire often used sticks to beat people, they often used carrots. And I think that um, uh, allowing people um, immigration status in Britain, you know, black people have been going to, Brit going to Oxford since the, 19th, the early 19th century. Um, and so they've been, you know, the, the, the state and particularly the imperial states often uses these kinds of carrots um, as part of its power. And I think decoloniality is fundamentally about doing away with that because decoloniality is about anti-capitalism. We understand colonialism as a capitalist project um, and therefore if we are to do away with capitalism we are to do away with, if we are to do away with imperialism and colonialism we are to do away with capitalism um, and I think that another reason that the term decoloniality is good is because it speaks to capitalism more directly than the language of anti-racism and arguably even more than the language of black power. Uh, just listening to uh, some of Simukai's examples um, I mean, I don't think these people are aberrations, right? These are pillars of the British establishment. These are people who speak for liberalism. This is liberalism's common sense. And I think the common sense that we are hearing here is one that reduces the meaning of violence to physical violence. These people don't understand what we call epistemic violence, right? And they make fun of the notion of epistemic violence. Um, John Simpson wrote a column in The New Statesman effectively poo-pooing the Rhodes Must Fall campaign saying, oh, these people feel violence when they walk past Oriel College and see a statue of Cecil Rhodes. So I think we need to talk about this idea of epistemic violence, whether it's a real thing. Um, and I would suggest that it is a real thing. It is a real thing. Um, it is a real form of violence, for example, when you 
um, see billboards in India advertising fair and lovely cream. Mm. And if you look at that billboard as a dark person and you know that this is never going to happen to you. Um, it is epistemic violence when you open a, a, a newspaper and see matrimonial ads asking for fair people, right? It is, it is a form of epistemic violence when you log on to a dating website uh, where profiles say things like no blacks, Asians, fats, femmes, etc. These are forms of epistemic violence, not just because they exclude some people, but because that exclusion is also internalized by those people themselves as a sign of their inferiority, as a sign of their not matching up in some way, right? And those feelings are real. They have real effects. They, they, uh, they make people more reluctant to try to achieve. They, they make people feel inferior. And those are very real effects, even if the message being propagated is false. And it takes a lot of psychic work to deal with that. Okay, so this, this is what I think is epistemic violence. And if you, you walk into any therapist's office and they will tell you that this is a real thing. Um, just taking up that point of um, epistemic violence, I think it's worth highlighting, not least when we're talking about decolonizing the university, since the university is a site where knowledge is produced, um, that's the, one of the defining components of being a university is that this is a, a, an institution in which knowledge is produced. It's especially worth confronting that question of epistemic violence because the university itself could be one of the, I guess, most dangerous breeding grounds for epistemic violence. And I think that, that brings us to the next question um, that, we, that we wanted to look at which is, well, what does it mean to call um, the university institution white? What does it mean for the university to be called a white institution? In what ways is it a white institution? Um, put differently in the word, wording of decolonization, coloniality, um, how does coloniality affect the higher, educations that we're, um, higher education institutions that we're part of? Um, how does it affect what is taught, what is learnt, what we read here? How does it affect... Um, broader practices such as the recruitment and attainment of staff and students? And also, how does it affect uh, non-academic non staff? How does it affect service staff, administrative staff, um, cleaning staff? Of course, here at SOAS, we've got the Justice for Cleaners campaign, many of whom are women from South America. How, how, how does coloniality <coughs> inscribe all of these relations within the university, if at all? I mean, to, to make the question seem <laughs> balanced. <laughs> Adam um, I, I could talk all day about this um, but I guess br rel relatively briefly I think the most important thing is probably or the, the biggest, the most trouble we, I had um, articulating um, this problem, this notion of whiteness um, when we were at UCL um, was that immediately people take it very personally um, and I, so often I have to explain to people that Race is a social construct, um, there's no biological basis to it, um, and therefore um, in some parts of the world, such as Zimbabwe for instance, I would probably be racialised as white. Um, I would definitely be racialised as white in somewhere like uh, Uganda for instance. Um, so therefore we know that, and so leading on from that, what we know is that while race is socially constructed, whiteness is always constructed at the top of the social hierarchy. Um, and it's therefore hegemonic. So when we talk about whiteness, we don't talk about white people, we're talking about power. I think the second thing that's really important is that from that point of departure, we can begin to think about the ways in which whiteness has been constructed intellectually in Britain, and particularly in London. Um, so what we did was we looked at the fact that 
in this the dawn of modernity um, uh, and the way in which modernity was really the way in which race was brought into modernity effectively. So for a very, very long time, race was, was had a lot of kind of religious connotations, right? It was very biblical and what have you. Um, and then it was really the dawn of eugenics that brought race out of the kind of the old days of kind of religious explanations for, for um, inferiority of the certain races and into the sciences, the, the rational, the cold, the enlightened, um, the modern. Um, and not only was whiteness something which was racialized. Um, but Francis Galton, the, um, the professor who has a lecture theatre named after him at UCL, um, and still has a, and there's still a Galton chair there who's now a geneticist as, as opposed to a eugenicist, which is nice, um, <laughs> not only identified whiteness as being the pinnacle of human existence, but white maleness as the pinnacle of human existence, and heteronormative white maleness, and physically abled by our society, and um, and also brought class into it a great deal because um, many eugenicists identified a cockney race within London, which was outbreeding the higher classes. And so from the very kind of modern inception of whiteness was intersectionality. And, it, and I think what's really important about that is it, it takes intersectionality, it's a, a, it speaks directly to the some of the critiques of intersectionality, which identify it as a superficial identity politics, and reinscribe it and help us to reinforce the notion that this is these are the foundations of structural imperial rule. Um, and I think that's why we found whiteness such an important tool in articulating the ways in which our curriculum is structured and the ways in which it reproduces dominant power structures. Simakai. Shall we I, well, I mean, I, I think that uh, Adam's pretty much captured uh, what, I would, what I would have said, uh, but better. Um, uh, maybe the only addendum I would add is that, Adam, if you were in Zimbabwe, you'd be racialized as, uh, as colored, not white, I'm afraid, oh, which means that you'd fall down a rung uh, on the racial hierarchy. <laughs> Probably still be doing better than him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with Adam. I would take... Um, what's interesting in talking about whiteness and that awkwardness that it produces, I think it's captured nicely in this line by Richard Dyer, um, which says that the sensibility about it is that other people are raced, we're just people, right? And what it means, it speaks to that idea of whiteness as an unmarked category. White is just normal, right? It doesn't need a racial identifier in the way that Asian does or black does because it's just, it's just normal, um, and that is why, and that is part of the invisibilization of power that makes it so difficult to talk about. So the first thing that you do when you talk about a white curriculum um, is suddenly undermine people's sense of, normal, of what normal was and the fact, and it's mostly unreflective in terms of how it's reproduced. That doesn't make it any less powerful. The fact that it's unintentional, that people did not mean to be racist doesn't mean anything in terms of its effects, but it does explain, um, I'm, I, in, in some senses, the, the um, virulence of the backlash. I mean, people that I have, uh, in some senses, otherwise agreed with on a number of things, I've been astonished at the virulence of their backlash to, to roads must fall. Um, and from that, revealing the depths of their psychic investment, not really considered investment, but psychic investment in a certain distribution of of power. Um, so what I think, I mean, in terms of whiteness in an organizational disciplinary sense, um, 
international relations is a good discipline to reflect on where whiteness came from in a particular structure of knowledge. And I think you can tell the story for every, every discipline. Uh, international relations as a self-conscious discipline uh, emerges in the late, very late 19th, basically early 20th century. And in that period, it's a it's as a new book by Robert Vitalis is telling us, it's a, it's a discipline about race relations. It's about how to manage and maintain white supremacy, how to rule the world from a position of power, but that power being specifically understood as racialized uh, power. Um, one of the major journals in the discipline, which is now called Foreign Affairs, began life as the journal of race development, right? Race was a central question in how international relations was initially organized. What has happened over time is that the genetic and, um, if you like, the inheritance factors of whiteness as a complex of thought have been removed, but the preoccupation with Western supremacy hasn't. So in this sense, uh, international relations has loosely rebranded itself, but not structurally rebranded its, uh, or structurally rethought what it wants to do with the knowledge that it produces. Most of it is still produced in the United States. Most of it is how to maintain US power. Most of it is about trying to deal with future threats from China and so often. Now, for me, what is interesting about um, <coughs> education is that there's always an imminent potential. And as Adam said right at the outset, right, the, the academy has been a space for uh, and the Metropole has always been a space for organizing against empire. And I think um, one of the things that I would say is that I think that universities always have that latent potential because they're supposed to be places of critical thinking to upset as well as reproduce um, structures of knowledge. So to the question at the back, which I didn't really pick up on, like what does a decolonized university look like? In some ways, I'm less interested in that question than what does a decolonizing university look like, because it's an ongoing process, and one can start to pick apart different parts of it rather than have like a programmatic scheme for what the end goal looks like. Because in some sense, what we're also trying to do is make sense of what this might look like in the future uh, means. So if epistemic violence is one category that people find hard to grasp, I think the other is institutional racism, right? So when we use the phrase so-and-so place or space is institutionally racist, the reaction is often, who, me? No, I have black friends, I did X, I did Y. Responses that are besides the point, right? Institutional racism does not refer to um, racist bashing on the street, right? It's not the Ku Klux Klan kind of situation. It refers to phenomena like... Uh, whereby, for example, black majority areas just happen to have the worst schools and public services, right? Which invites us to ask, what are the uh, enormously complex policy decisions that interact to produce this situation? So what are, the, what, are the, what are all the sets of decisions, practices, ways of thinking and living that produce a situation where black students uh, and staff are underrepresented in educational institutions? That is what a conversation about institutional racism is about, or should be about. Any, any contributions from the, from the floor? We've got one over here, and then we've got one here, and then one at the back. Do you mind if we take, oh, there's someone there already. Great, okay. Oh. Hi. Um, I'm not sure how to um, sort of word this, but talking about institutional racism and um, about the white language that we um, have to police from our students 
and the fact that the education at secondary school, especially in this country, does have racial outcomes. And uh, in trying to diversify the university, obviously we're diversifying the body, but when we, as teachers, we're um, sort of um, directing how to articulate ideas and um, knowledge, we're doing it in a very white way. Uh, in that sense, the outcomes and the achievements of these students are sort of racially higher up. And I feel like I'm complicit in this um, because I get, get given a paper which says this is how marks are given. And um, obviously, um, the, these, um, yeah, the, there is a kind of colonial um, sort of structure to it. I'm not sure if I make sense. <laughs> Thanks. There were two, two hands. There was, one, there was one, yeah, just there. And then we'll have two more by the pillar. So, yeah. Hi, um, well, I've got a question of contribution to make with regards to how do we make these debates more practical. Um, I'm a former student at UCT. I was there when Roads Must Fall began. In fact, I was there when the pieces were thrown on the road statue, and I pretty much followed it right up until um, September when I came here. And one of the things I've been, I've, been I've been grappling with is how do we make these things more practical? I mean, for example, South Africa is a very complex place. You have a very conservative middle class, both black and white, who see these students as hooligans, and therefore it's very hard for them to convince the wider population, especially the middle class, that their you know, activism is legitimate. You have a state which sees these students as people who basically are influenced by outsiders, mainly foreigners, so they blame the Americans or the Black Lives Matter group or whoever is influencing them in terms of like, getting ideas. At the same time, you've got a large majority who hasn't been to university or access to university, and therefore they do not understand what you guys mean by decolonization or trying to you know, um, decolonize the space. So therefore, how do we translate what you guys are talking about to the wider majority of South Africans without telling them the obvious about how terrible their lives are or repeating the same thing over and over that they know? And so again, it goes back to the question is, what is the end game? What would you like to see at the end of this whole process? So there's two questions just by the pillar. Um, one of the front was first. Um, one thing that I wanted to know is that why, if we're all, most of us here are more or less a product of empire, even while we're still somehow being oppressed by, you know, post-imperial notions. For me, part of the problem is if you somehow got, let's say, a university curriculum or, you know, Western society to accept, you know, a lot of different views and a different hegemony into their system, it wouldn't actually change the Western supremacy. You know, arguably, we would be a stronger society. The institutions would be stronger because they've acknowledged the diversity within their society, but this would actually only reinforce their supremacy and Western supremacy. So can you actually have, you know, um, let's say a shifting of the white view as well as decolonize, a shifting of Western supremacy? Um, yeah, I guess my question quite, kind of links up to this as well. I'm, I'm wondering what your reflections are on like our own positionality when we try to decolonize. 
uh, as part of the diaspora and as people who have the privilege of being able to access education and so on. Uh, thanks all. Um, great questions. And I think it's really good that a lot of these questions have really started pushing us towards the more practical side of what does it mean to decolonize. Um, so, I mean, taking up any, any one of those questions, I'm going to start with you, Simiko. Um, so I think I'll perhaps um, just start with that last question um, about our own positionality um, and being in a position of, of privilege to study at elite universities while also engaging with this process. Um, and I guess as a, as a general point, I mean, I think that um, whoever you are, wherever you are, uh, as you're thinking about power and its critique, I think that there is always some kind of validity in, in understanding, articulating, uh, naming uh, the ways in which power manifests itself and who it comes at the expense of and why. Um, but to be more particular, um, we actually had this debate quite intensely within Rosemus Fall in Oxford. Um, one of the issues that came up um, that was quite a difficult process was uh, the question of are we co-opting uh, the South African movement. So rather than acting in solidarity, is the fact that we're at Oxford giving us a certain kind of uh, platform that they would not otherwise be able to get. And the same goes for uh, what happens uh, in the UK. You know, the, the amount of press coverage and attention given to this issue is uh, largely a reflection of how the establishment, you know, prizes and values um, Oxford. Um, I had done my undergraduate degree at Newcastle University, and I'm fairly confident in saying um, that if these issues had come up, it would not have been um, uh, covered so extensively over the Christmas period. So I think that there are, there are these tensions and contradictions. So with regards to the, the, um, the South African uh, or the relationship between Rosemus Fall and Oxford and Rosemus Fall UCT, um, we were in constant and continue to be in constant conversation with them. Um, that has happened over a series of conversations over Skype. It has happened, you know, sharing panels at conferences both um, in the UK and there. And a kind of um, constant need for internal education um, to, to think and try to be aware of not reproducing um, the very kinds of, of inequalities and power dynamics that we stand against. Um, I certainly can't say that it's a, it's a perfect process, and I, I like this idea of looking at this as decolonizing, you know, as an iterative and ongoing process. Um, and I think that also just speaks to, to broader issues of how we conceptualize and think about social change. Um, you know, you never really move in a set of absolute victories. These things are kind of fragmented and spread out, and we're... Um, I think there's a call for a politics of radical humility, which is to say that what happens at Oxford and the issues that we're dealing with are happening in a very elite space. Our issues with the, the statue are not comparable um, to, say, workers' struggles in, in the mines in, in South Africa, and I think it would be um, kind of uh, hubristic to claim so. Um, so I think that there is a way in which we're saying some of these wider dynamics are refracted through our institutions in a particular kind of way, and that's what we're talking about, and to remain constantly sort of humble and aware of the limitations of what we can do while at the same time trying to speak to some of these, these wider issues. 
Mira. Uh, yeah, I, um, I agree with a lot of that. I would say on this, I, I think I'm one of these people that worries less about co-optation for some reason. Not because I don't think that the privilege point is important, but I just think historically it's always been the case that social movements do beg, borrow and steal, that they work within and between a lot of different spaces um, and that pure, an attempt to purify any particular political movement of all, uh, of all relationships with power is actually, uh, in some senses, to miss, the, to miss the point. And so in that sense, I, I think that with a, with a humble sensibility and, and the kinds of things that you're talking about, um, it's possible, I suppose, not to worry too much about getting co-opted unless you've really become deviated from what you thought you were doing in the, in the first place. But I wanted to maybe come back to the question about would decolonizing uh, maybe Western society change the facts of Western supremacy or reinforce it? Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. In, on, on one level, like Western supremacy is already on the wane, right? In the, um, the economies of the West are no longer... Um, no longer monopolize the uh, holdings of global capital. We see uh, them being increasingly indebted, increasingly fragile to a form of transnational capital that has changed the nature of what it means to be a state. That's not to say that Western supremacy doesn't exist and there's particular ways in which it makes itself felt. But in a way, whether or not the West does anything in, in itself to be more reflexive, those structural changes are are happening. I'm not sure that they are completely connected. I mean, there's just, a, in some sense, a, a rise of graduates, of thinkers, of organizations, of um, economies, of businesses, that is just sucking this, the center of gravity out of, out of the West, um, even though there are structures within capitalism that mean that inequality is also increasing um, between the richest and the poorest. Um, so in that sense, the... The call to essentially decolonize socially and open up and pluralize the space in the university or in in social orders um, can have can have ripple effects uh, in terms of thinking about how politicians can justify certain decisions and what what becomes the realm of the possible. Um, but I think it's got its own intrinsic value as well, I suppose. Um. So I guess two things. In terms of the positionality, I think it's a really important question. It's, I think it's the one we've all talked about and think about a great deal. Um, and one of the ways in which I think we can um, help to deal with it is think about similar kind of anti-imperialist um, or anti-racist or what have you movements um, historically, which have um, been led by or have, have been heavily influenced by people in a similar position to ourselves. So they have... Historically, there have always been people from the diaspora who have come to the centres of empire in order to organise against that very same empire. Um, and I think that drawing upon those legacies, whether it be people like uh, Franz Fanon or Kwame Nkrumah or others, um, or uh, Claudia Jones, etc., I think it's really... Um, it's it's, I found possibly some, the most helpful way of doing that. Um, I think the other question about... Um, the extent to which the kind of work that we're doing can end Western supremacy. I don't think that the kind of work that we personally do and the people in this room will ever end Western supremacy. Um, I think that the only way Western supremacy will ever end will come from the peoples of the global south. And to not oversimplify things, but I think the way, one of the key ways in which that will happen will be by cutting off 
the resources which the centres of empire rely on in order to reproduce their power. Um, and all of those resources basically lie in the global south, whether it be the labour, whether it be the minerals and other natural resources. Um, and I think that our role, therefore, is simply, not again to oversimplify, to be as disruptive as we possibly can within the centre of empire. Um, and if we're at the university anyway, which we all are, um, I think disrupting its centres of knowledge production is one way in which we can disrupt the functioning of, of empire centres. So I just want to connect up the question on what, what are the practical things we can do with the other question on whether simply di diversifying would, would uh, affect Western supremacy. Uh, on, on the latter question, I think um, Nancy Fraser's distinction between a politics of recognition and a politics of redistribution is an important one and relevant to understanding uh, this issue. Uh, that in a sense, decolonizing has to be about both recognition and redistribution. It can't just be limited to a politics of recognition. Um, but I also think we cannot, we cannot think of redistribution as the practical stuff and recognition and symbolic work as, as a second best category of objectives. Um, and I think this also in relation to the issue of the statue, because many people who are well disposed towards uh, the, the campaigns, why is my curriculum white or roads must fall, uh, want to see the statue merely as a symbol of the, a more practical problem, a more material problem of underrepresentation. And so you, you often hear from sympathetic commentators the, the, the claim that the statue is a sideshow and that this is really about underrepresentation in the curriculum. And I, I sort of used to think this myself. And then I thought about uh, Dalit self assertion in India, one of the most visible and prominent manifestations of which is the building of statues enormous number of statues in the smallest towns and villages. Everywhere you go, you'll see statues of Ambedkar and to some extent other Dalit leaders as well. And this critique is also made of Dalits. So Dalit leaders are accused of wasting money to build these statues. Um, interestingly, yesterday, the government of India, in response to the increasing um, uh, uh, unrest on campuses across the country has decided that all central universities must now fly the national flag on a flagpole that is 207 feet high. This is a new rule. It costs an enormous money to build a flagpole that is 207 feet high. I have actually managed to calculate how much money this would cost. But the point I'm trying to make is that the ruling classes and castes are enormously invested in symbolism, right? Except that this is their symbols. So symbolism is, is an important terrain on which these battles for political power, for redistribution, are being fought. Um, uh, Virin Shepard, who's a professor in the West Indies, uses the term iconographic decolonization to describe the kind of symbolic work that has to accompany uh, uh, this kind of politics of redistribution. So I just suppose I, my, my response to that question would be that the practical stuff is both material and symbolic. I think it's really interesting how um, some of the questions from the floor have effectively preempted the, the, the questions that I wanted to ask myself as part of the rest of the discussion. The two of them were, um, Adam's already touched on this, how would decolonial movements, if you want to call them that, decolonial movements within universities in particular in the UK relate to, connect with, aid, um, help, show support to movements in the global south and I think it's worth unpacking that in a bit more in a bit more detail and, and I do want to do that 
a second thing is um, how does it relate to those, I don't know quite how to phrase this because I have a problem with the use of the word communities, but how would the university re relate to the community outside it? How would it relate to the locality or the space it inhabits outside of it? How would it link up with local campaigns that are trying to tackle many of the same issues, namely capitalist, white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity? Um, I'm not going to ask both those questions at the same time because that's a lot to do. But yeah, how, um, how would, let's start with the first one. How would movements, decolonial movements in the universities in the UK, how could these possibly relate to movements in the, in the global south? Um, Adam, you, you already started. I don't know if you want to elaborate a bit more on what you said. or uh, I? Um, uh, I could just give examples, I guess, of the kind of things that um, I've been involved in the past that I thought um, were useful. Um, I guess one of them is, I guess I've mentioned it a bit already, but the fact that not this university, but other, like I did my undergrad at Nottingham, the, many, most, many universities in this country, we have an engineering department, it's basically funded by an arms manufacturer, right? And so these facilitates forms of conflicts and violent, violent repression across the global south. And so one of the useful things we can do is to disrupt the functioning of um, these arms, massive arms manufacturers um, who are basically working in the same, who are operating the same institution that we are. Um, and so if we're here anyway, we have power as, as students or staff in the, within these institutions, I think that's a really positive thing we can do. And I think similar, I think equivalent things um, could um, be brought out for yeah, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, financial industry, um, the energy companies and, and, and so on as well. Um, I think the other thing that um, we can also do is, um, so we've also had a number of um, uh, solidarity movements with social movements in South Africa, sub, such as Abakhali Basum Jundolo. And we've said to them quite directly, okay, so what can we do from the position that we're currently in? And they're like, look, we don't need money, we don't need support, so we don't need you know, that, any, kind of, any kind of like material stuff. One of the best things we, you can do is when um, one of our activists is arrested, we'll send you the phone number of the police station where they are, and we want all of your students to call up put on your poshest English accent, tell them which institution you're from, and tell them you're absolutely disgusted with <coughs> the way in which they're being treated. And this is a very practical thing that you can do to, to, to not stop, but help to ameliorate the violent repression that activists in the Global South experience that we don't really experience in the same way at all. Um, and so, yeah, I guess these are two relatively practical ways which I think we can hopefully be useful. Well. Um, I think these connections are already happening. Um, for example, when the Brunei Gallery occupation was going on here in SOAS, uh, there, was a simul there was another very different kind of occupation happening in New Delhi where the, the University Grants Commission was occupied by students of many Delhi universities because of the withdrawal of funding, very meager funding, for uh, scholarships and fellowships. And um, interestingly, the Indian students sent, I think, a message of solidarity to SOAS first, uh, and then the messages traveled in both directions. Um, but I think our, the ingenuity of our students is already sort of producing these kinds of transnational global connections, uh, which um, we should be doing more of. I'm, I'm sure there's much more to say about this, but that's just one example that I've seen in the recent past. Um, yeah, I think that, um, so, in a previous life, um, before I, I came into, um, into academia and social science, I used to work as a medical doctor. Um, 
and it's become very fashionable uh, within medicine as a field to talk about uh, global health, uh, which by and large, uh, the common sense understanding of what global health is, is medicine in other places, um, other than the West, <laughs> which is in fact partly why I left medicine. But, um, uh, but I think what's been quite interesting um, in, in that respect is that health is an interesting terrain in which social movements and political movements play out. Um, and, and a shining example would be the treatment action campaign um, in South Africa uh, and how hard that group worked towards um, universalizing or at least increasing access to antiretroviral medication and certainly making it universal for, for, for pregnant women. Um, but it was a movement, while very powerful in South Africa, intensely embedded uh, with other movements elsewhere, particularly, um, say, the gay rights movement in, in, in the United States um, and, and its connections to, to questions around HIV. Um, and so I think that some of the, 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 the models, the ideas of beg, borrowing, and stealing um, across social movements are quite kind of uh, a powerful way within which we, we think about these questions. And also the, the increasing need to, to articulate and conceptualize the various um, hegemonies that we're, we're contending with across, across borders in a kind of, well, genuine way. Um, I don't have a lot to add, really. I mean, I think the the thing about letting other people take the lead on their struggles and listening to what they want and giving them the help that they ask for and not what you think they need uh, is just a generally good principle. I mean, in uh, in my research, I work on international aid, and, and one of the persistent issues there, in fact, the biggest persistent issue there in terms of how it reproduces relations of coloniality is not the impulse to help. I mean, there's plenty of desire to help, but the imposition of what the priorities are, what the frameworks are, what you should be doing, I mean, that's just the perniciousness. I mean, people would rather you, I think in many cases, people would rather you listened and gave less money and less uh, stuff if it was stuff that they actually wanted or stuff that they'd asked for or stuff which you'd talked about together so that um solidarity rather than angst or guilt guilt is a terrible place to help people from um <laughs> is is really important and that just involves listening knowing what you can do not over promising um and delivering what you've uh delivering what you've said you would does i mean one of the questions raised the issue of complicity and i wonder if and also another question raised um, the issue of uh, positionality. And I, I wonder if any of you have anything to add or anything to develop on any possible pitfalls or dangers that haven't already been discussed, any possible pitfalls or dangers that exist with trying to organize from this particular space that should be, should be avoided. Um, I've got a few hands going up. Can we just quickly take it from the panelists and then we'll go to the, go, go to the crowd after that? So, um, uh, Rahul. I mean, the, the positionality is, is always a complicated thing because it's not easily describable along any one axis, right? We are at intersections of multiple things, class, caste, religion, gender, sexuality, ability, <coughs> other things I haven't mentioned, and we can be privileged on some of these axes and not privileged on others. Um, and that, that acknowledging that positionality can be a difficult thing because sometimes acknowledging privilege is seen 
to be a, a, a marker of your illegitimacy to speak for a certain cause. Um, and I, I, I mention this also because some of the leaders of Roads Must Fall have been attacked for their supposed privilege or for their actual privilege, as if that made them hypocrites uh, for being involved in this kind of movement. Um, and I think that's a problem. I think it becomes the, the tool of a, a sort of establishment, a white establishment, to delegitimize a movement. Um, it's, it's the easiest trick in the book, and it's being used uh, in this case. So yes, one, one is complicity. That's not to say that the existence of people of color in universities means the problem has ended, right? So that's, that's not at all what I'm saying. Um, but but it, is, it is part of what makes politics complicated, and uh, there's no shying away from it. And acknowledging it and having a very frank discussion about it is, is, is a much better way to go. Mr. McCoy, did you have anything to add? Uh, not at the moment. Anyone else? Um, yeah, go on. Um, I think one of the most difficult things is how to, uh, just in a practical sense, how to fight with love, right? Um, it's quite uh, easy to see people who are otherwise allied in terms of their principle and their politics just consistently tear themselves apart um, on, on one front or another. Um, so one of the uh, things, and I don't necessarily have a, a clear answer to this, but um, is how to wage effective campaigns that do what needs to be done and call people out, and you know, not in a sort of excusing uh, things way, but to understand that both yourselves and the people that you are up against are human, are limited, will screw up, um, will annoy you, will annoy each other. Um, and it's an interesting, in terms of the um, campaigns that were fought against colonialism in the, in the 20th century, um, those that managed to you know, stay abroad church were in many senses more successful than those that fell out over differences and personality issues. So I don't know. The, the internet is a dangerous place in that respect. Because of the depersonalized nature of interaction, it's actually so much easier to become conflictual, I think, than express solidarity and, and love in that way. So that's, I think, a specific challenge for organizing today. Can I, can I just quickly comment? Um, um, actually, I completely agree with that. And I think it's reminded me of one other pitfall. And we've certainly had this issue um, in Oxford, but I think it exists in activist spaces elsewhere. I think that um, at times in, in, in the impulse to be um, intersectional and to think about the manifold manifestations of oppression, um, they can make it difficult to discern some of the practicalities of what it means to organize and to have a structure and to work with people. So um, I think that interpersonal relationships and personality and character are also an intrinsic part of working together. And I think there is a pitfall of applying political categories or over-applying certain political categories or categories of sociological analysis to interpersonal conflicts, for example. Um, so we've had, um, you know, there have been issues, for example, where um, two people clash and rather than resolving the conflict, um, somebody's called a patriarch or a racist or something like that. So I think that there is this tension that sometimes exists between this very important imperative to be intersectional, but at the same time to know how to manage interpersonal relations and to organize. Um, so some questions. There's two down here um, in the f um, from the first row and then behind. Can you keep your... Um, uh, 
you had your hand up before. I don't know if you still want to... Yeah. Okay, so two down here have their hands up. Um, front row first. Um, and then... Yeah. No, no, no. Behind you. Behind you. Oh. Please, when, when he's coming around with the mics, so if you keep your hand up, it'll be, it'll be easier. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Hi. <clears throat> yes. I uh, greatly appreciate the, uh, the panel and all the insights that has been communicated. Now, I'm wondering, though, if there is not... Uh, something that is missing in the discussion here. And what might be missing in the discussion here is the issue of justice. I haven't heard justice mentioned one single time. Now, uh, and as um, most of us here, I guess, know, reparatory justice or reparative justice is an issue that is uh, very much... Um, at the forefront these days, and not least uh, as CARICOM has decided to uh, demand reparatory justice for the legacies of British and other European uh, colonialism in the Caribbean, and especially enslavement and genocide. Uh, and I'm wondering if uh, the issue of... Uh, issues of, of, of decolonialism uh, sh should not uh, be couched, perhaps even primarily, in terms of justice. And if we do, that the concept of reparatory justice will be a central one. Thanks, then just behind. Um, thanks for mentioning the Umbedgo statues, Rahul. I think that's a really good example of how you can't separate symbolic assertion and material assertion because the building of those Umbedgo statues is often also a laying claim to common land within a city that Dalits are often excluded from. So there is a very material act that's taking place with the building of an Umbedgo statue. I have a question in re relation to Dalit struggles, which is about the hijacking of the language of post-colonial theory and anti-imperialism that has happened um, in England around the issue of caste being introduced into race equality legislation where right-wing Hindu groups have accused people who are working on caste of being orientalist because they're talking about caste. Uh, just the very act of talking about caste is somehow some kind of assertion of colonial knowledge or epistemic violence. Indeed, those are exactly the terms that right-wing Hindu groups have used to <coughs> attack people talking about caste. So, yeah, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those complexities. And then there was a question. Is there still a question? Yeah? No? No, okay. <laughs> just, just here, Imran. Um, a point and a question. I just wanted to shout out about the Divest from Detention, which is a new campaign that the SU is running, and it is about you know, divesting from organizations and institutions that are complicit in migration detention centers in Fortress Europe and in the building and maintenance of the Israeli apartheid war. And this comes back to, I think, Adam, your point about universities being a site of investment, both for companies as well as universities investing in companies. So it's something that is very practical that we can do and take action on. That's more than solidarity or like tokenistic. And the question is, um, because there's so much to do, one of the pitfalls I kind of struggle with and I see around me is, a kind of myopic understanding of an issue or 
and engaging with one issue and not seeing the intersectionality between uh, the different things that could fall under decoloniality and say of the curriculum or of the education system and the wider community on those questions of actually how do you square those things up? What do you engage with? Do you go to all of it? Do you go to some of it? So like the practical element and what that means in terms of your activism and the kind of ideological stance you come from. Like, that makes sense. Take one more um, from over there, right at the back. Sorry, I didn't see, I didn't see you. Um, we can take that question as well. Um, hi, um, thanks very much. Um, I'm also from the University of Cape Town, well, that's where I was in my undergrad. And I think um, just to pick up on a few things that have been mentioned around language as power and speaking around violence, there was something recently that happened that, um, where students burnt art, but then what was told in the media was that they burnt art and that was violence and not the incredible brutality that was meted out against them by the police. And UCT is, because of its proximity to whiteness, there's a focus on it, but this is happening across South Africa in smaller universities where police is just responding in complicit, complicity with uh, the university management to, to struggles to decolonize. And so I wonder also in terms of forms of solidarity, writing about what constitutes violence, I mean, it's an obvious point, but it really... Um, the way it's been spoken about in mainstream media um, is really demonized to such an extent the students that there's an oversight of police uh, incredible violence. Thanks. What I'm basically trying to say is this though, yeah? Like, I basically just walked in here, innit? Like, the one thing I'm struggling with, everybody's, uh, at the end of all your questions and whatnot, you're all coming out with, if that makes any sense, why is no one talking English? You hear me? Like, like break it down, innit? This is, this is a human thing, innit? First and foremost. So, my whole thing is, why are we all talking in these kind of, look, just imagine someone walked in from whatever and just like, you know what, I'm trying to understand what this whole discussion is about. Obviously, I came in a little late, so I apologize for that. You hear me? So, my whole thing is this, like, why are we not talking English? Talk English. Like, break it down. Like, some of these words are going over my head. I can understand a, a, a certain amount of it. You know what I mean? But let's break it down, innit? That's all I'm basically trying to say, innit? Because I'm trying to be involved, but it's some of my people are sleeping over here. Like, you know what I mean? It's just, yeah. Look, let's break it down, please. It's a little, you know? Like, let's talk English. Give me basic. There's another question over here. Other way. Um, so my question is to do with this notion of complicity. Because um, I feel that when it came up, things got boiled down to um, complicity in terms of individual, either complicity or privileges. And maybe we should be talking about complicity um, 
not the opposite of complicity, not being just individual non-compliance or individual acknowledgement of privilege, but perhaps abolition. So working towards the abolition of the nation state, working towards the abolition of the university as a boundaried space. Um, what do these things mean in terms of decolonization more generally and decolonizing the university? Okay. Uh, yeah, go on. Um, so my question, I think, has a relationship with the last two, uh, two ones. So you say talk English, but then I'm thinking, why are we all talking English? Yes, but this is the problem. So what does decolonizing means if the language of decolonization always happens with the tools and the words of the colonizer. So um, this happens many times in uh, all of the movements, organization movements and actions uh, where I find myself talking another language, even though I know most of the people around me could speak different languages with me, but we would still uh, have our main uh, central link as English, and I think this is very problematic too, because there are many things we're missing because we're only using that language. Uh, there's a hand up right at the back. Is that related to this question of language? It, it is? Because if it, if it is another one to bring into it, but yeah, the same, do you want to? Yeah. I can, yeah. But, Others over here might not be able to. So. Can you hear me? All right. What this boils down to is some people in this country are not aware of how deep it really goes. There's more, more than one world in this country at the moment, and a lot of people just pretend that the world they live in is the only one that exists. For myself, a descendant of transatlantic slavery, born in this country, to parents who are not born in this country, you know, I've grown up in this country. I am a social anthropologist, but... Uh, white person, for want of a better term, will have difficulty with that. Because when I'm looking at the society that I live in, I look at the way white people treat me on a daily basis sometimes and think, what do you expect me to tell my children? You know, there were serious questions raised during like, the Black Panther movement, civil rights movement and stuff, and these questions weren't answered by certain generations. So people have to understand that it's not just in the uni. Outside, things are going on as well. Questions have been asked, things have been debated, and these things are real serious and real important. And whether people want to be acknowledging of these discussions or not, like, for example, white supremacy for someone like myself is one of the major arguments. So I'm not interested in IB for or what happens on the telly because it doesn't reflect me, so I don't watch. And a lot of people are like me. So where we've got already more than one system, more than one environment, more than one world, it's only getting worse. And this is a good forum, but like I think what we're trying to say, what is your goal. How are you going to make a difference in the real world with the decolonization and with white supremacy, which is, like my brother down there said about CARICOM, you know, England owes Jamaica 7.5 trillion. This is not a rant, this is just, you know, how are you going to pay that? Because I'm Jamaican, so, you know, these are questions that need to be addressed. Like, obviously, the average white person's like, well, it's over. It's not actually over, because it's never been over. Since it started, it's been non-stop. But I don't want to get into things that are not relevant. That's just like what I'm saying and I think what some of the other people are saying. So if I can send this back. I think what a lot of these questions are, are pointing at is the potential for 
questions around decolonizing and so on to become very insular and take place within the university bubble. And I think a lot of this speaks to this question of how does any discussion around decolonizing, how does the political activism related to it extend beyond that bubble and relate to struggles that are taking place outside of the university? Um, are there any problems or there any potentialities um, involved with, with, that, with that question? But yeah, that's, that's I think, um, something that relates to quite a few of the questions. So just wanted to add that on top, but um, Mira. I appreciate what's been said. I will say I don't like the division between the university and the real world. This is a part of the real world. There are workers here. There are people here experiencing sexism, racism, heteronormativity, ableism, right? This is the university is part of the social landscape and it's a space where tr social transformation can happen. So in that sense, not decolonizing the university is not an option, right? If people get their privileges and their power from attending places like Oxbridge, then that needs to be challenged in terms of how they are taught, who teaches them, what they learn. Um, and some of that struggle needs to be waged in, in the journals, in the conferences, in academic language. And so in terms of what, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this to not say that we shouldn't connect with what's going on outside, we should, but we must understand the university as part of a totality. So to the extent that there is a point to academically decolonizing, to coming up with new ideas, how to study the world, how to uh, generate new theories, publish them, get them into curriculums. This is about changing people's minds. Um, and doing so from positions of collective strength. I won't say privilege and authority, but uh, a decolonized curriculum can be a source of collective strength and collective transformation. Um, that said, I appreciate that the university shouldn't be forefront of everybody's uh, priorities, but this thing about how to make connections between different social spaces and how to help each other um, I think can't presuppose that the university is itself not a site in which social action happens. Rahul? Yeah, I think the questions about language and connecting with the world outside the university are very important. Um, I agree with what Mira said, that we have different terrains of, of struggle. We have different arenas in which we work and live and function. And this is a struggle that we have to carry to all of those spaces. Otherwise, we're not going to achieve what we want. But I, for me, I see decolonizing in the academy as doing a number of things. And not all of us will do all of these things. But for example, some of the things we would want to do are we, we want to tell the histories of people whose histories have not been told before or whose histories have been lost. We want to write new stories in which um, the, the same people are not always portrayed as, as villains or as backward. We want to rid ourselves of the inferiority complexes that we have grown up with as a result of the things that we were taught. These are, in, 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 in a language that I think anyone anywhere would be able to appreciate, these are the goals of a decolonizing practice. And we will, I'm sure, implement them in different ways in different places by doing different sorts of things depending on what it is we do in, in our life and work. Um, just responding to Tanya's question about, uh, I, I don't know enough about that, the, the controversies around how the caste debate has operated in Britain, but I would say that um, 
post-colonial theory has been uh, has 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 had difficulty dealing with Ambedkar. Uh, because here is a figure who was not afraid to use the tools of Western liberalism to fight uh, his opponents, right? So this is somebody who was quite prepared to seize the sort of gifts of the Western Enlightenment and of liberalism and Marxism. He was sort of omnivorous in, in, his, in his interests um, to, to further Dalit struggle in India. Um, I think what you're describing is that tendency for upper caste groups to say to lower caste groups in Britain, uh, let's not wash our dirty linen in the gaze of a white audience, right? That's, that's the way in which uh, they have appropriated post-colonial concerns um, to sort of further their purpose. But there's a very naked kind of disingenuousness about that. Uh, first of all, what is this our Right? Dalits don't think of themselves as part of that hour. So this demand to solve a problem internally doesn't make sense if there isn't a shared community within which these different groups can meet. Um, and there isn't. Right? Uh, Ambedkar's conversion to Buddhism is an explicit move out of that community. It's an explicit rejection of that community, although he does accept the shared community of the nation state and the constitution. That is the framework within which he wants to adjudicate this dispute, not the framework of religion um, and, and caste. So I think one way to respond to that upper caste critique, complaint, is, is, um, is to do what Ambedkar did, which was to, to, to seize whatever tools are available without worrying about uh, how this plays to that particular gallery, because that gallery is the opponent. They're never going to approve Um, okay, three, I'll be as quick as I can, three things. Um, first thing about reparations, yeah, really, really important. Um, uh, the brother at the back who talks about Jamaica getting the reparations as a solution, I think it's important that small islands get theirs as well, so let's not leave them out. Um, uh, the second thing is, I think it's really important to remember that historically, we mentioned the Black Panthers, we, me we mentioned Black Power, so you mentioned um, the civil rights movement. I think it's important to remember that the Black Panthers met on a university campus. The civil rights struggle involved huge numbers of students, and we see in South Africa as well, the anti-apartheid movement involved huge numbers of students. I think that people who haven't yet been as shackled into the capitalist system as the people who have to go and work a nine-to-five are in a really important position for um, uh, bringing about social change. We can see that historically, and I think it's important for us to remember that um, when we operate in universities today. Um, I think the third thing about uh, making things practical and relevant and um, in quote-unquote English, or at least a language you can understand, is in incredibly important. Um, uh, for me personally, my PhD looks at how black communities are organising to defend themselves from the police, um, and I think Although I felt this was really important because I began my work in the aftermath of the 2011 civil unrest when hundreds were getting incarcerated and raids on their homes and arrests and all these and being brutalised, all that kind of stuff, I think going forward it's even more important because we're seeing two important things taking place within the most marginalised communities in this country, the most oppressed communities in this country. The first is the abolition of legal aid. The second is the rise of the prison industrial complex. And I think, therefore, in, if we are to be practical and relevant to the real material needs and urgencies of these communities, we need to ensure that we realise that most people aren't going to be able to access a lawyer when they get arrested um, in the next 15 to 20 years going forward. And they're going to need to, number one, either be trained in legal stuff themselves, or number two, a hell of a lot of us are going to need to get legal training ourselves in order to try to quell the rising 
power of the prison system within this country. And I think that's the kind, well, for me personally, that's the kind of work that I'm interested in doing to make our work as relevant and importantly as useful as possible for people outside of our institution. Um, in relation to that, there is a, a demo, I don't know if it's called a demo, it might be called a vigil um, on Tuesday, 7 p.m. at Holloway Prison for Sarah Reed, who was found dead in her prison cell in Holloway Prison. Um, and who has been, uh, many of you will be aware of this story already, um, was beaten by police um, and eventually found that they claim it's suicide. There's speculation, there's claims that it was um, a retribution carried out by the police against her because she um, complained against the police and those police were, uh, were punished for that. So um, in relation to what you're talking about, the prison industrial complex, a shout out for that, for that demo on Tuesday, Tuesday evening. Um, Mira, did you want to come? Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, no, that's fine. Um, I think uh, maybe perhaps two, two quick points. I do actually really like the, uh, the challenge for academia to be uh, more accessible and more understandable um, to a wider public. I think that, um, you know, like, like any other community, there is a risk of getting caught up in your own kind of internal logic or internal language game. Um, and that can make it very difficult to, to, to speak uh, in a wider forum. And, uh, you know, I think that as a hip-hop head myself, I feel like MCs have a lot to teach us um, about how we get our messages across in a short, pithy, uh, and effective way. Um, and then the other issue I wanted to mention, again, related to, to language and to decolonization. So I grew up in, I grew up in Zimbabwe. Um, and... Despite the fact that I grew up in a post-colonial country at a time when um, the, the name of the country had been changed, uh, all the major roads had been changed and named after um, nationalist heroes and, and, and pan-Africanists, um, at, at a time when uh, there was a real move or drive to instill a sense of, uh, of nationhood and history and belonging, uh, the kinds of institutions I went to were... Um, overwhelmingly still colonized in white. Um, the, my primary school, we would get 30 minutes a day of teaching in Shona, the main uh, local language in Zimbabwe. Uh, and it was generally seen as a joke. Uh, like you go in and you sing songs uh, and hold hands and um, it was a multiracial school so there was also this fear that overemphasizing Shona would alienate um, the white and the Asian students. Uh, when I got to, to high school, um, I went to, I went to um, an elite private school uh, in Harare that uh, Robert Mugabe Jr. subsequently went to. Uh, I don't know if that's a claim to fame or not. <laughs> um, it was a school started by, by Jesuit uh, missionaries, modeled on a, on a Jesuit school uh, in England. Um, I mean, it literally you know, had a tower kind of overlooking uh, everybody. We had a system of, of, of prefects whom we had to call sir, um, wearing knee socks with garters and so forth. Um, Shauna, again, completely dismissed. You only had to do it for two years, um, taught three days a week, half an hour each session. Um, and so I guess it's, to me that's a fascinating and really important point that I think the question of language really cuts so, so deeply 
into the debates that we're having and into education, not just at the tertiary elite level and not just in the UK, but around the world. How are elite institutions, you know, like the ones I've been educated in, constructed? Because I feel I've been, I've been cast in the mold of an Englishman long before I ever set foot in this country. Um, and so I think that the, the, the project of decolonization needs to speak to that. And I, I'd say the same for, for academia uh, to an important extent, that overwhelmingly publications are dominated by the English language. Um, you know, will there ever be a point where we can become radical enough um, to have more indigenous language scholarship or, you know, moving away from the overprivileging of English or even have um, academic arguments, you know, couched in, in urban vernaculars. So I think that there's an interesting challenge that's been leveled to us within the academy and, and I take that very seriously. I think what we are saying points to the simple fact that a whole lot of knowledge is produced outside of the university mm. and produced by people who aren't, strictly speaking, in the, in the sort of the way the university defines it, is, are not academically trained. And I think there's a danger in the simple existence of the university that a strict boundary line is created between those who produce lit legit legitimate knowledge, those who produce legitimate forms of language and communicating, and ideas on the one hand and those who produce illegitimate knowledge or non-recognized knowledge on the other. And that itself is a colonial relation. That itself is something that colonialism was built on um, and weaponized in order to oppress um, the, the colonized people. Um, but Mary, sorry, I'm, I'm going off once. Mary, no. you wanted to come back in? No, no, sorry. Sorry, I just wanted to say something. I didn't respond to the point about reparations raised at the front and at the back, which I thought was very important. And this connects to the question about abolition. Um, actually, for me, the key thing to abolish is the language of development and aid, right? There should be redistributive policies that take money from the Western and give it to places that they formerly colonized. But it should be recognized as part of a redistributive uh, justice aim and not part of this lie about, oh, well, you're backward and we're going to help you out because, you know, because you've robbed us, right? And then there's, um, there's something to do with abolishing the language of development and aid. But that word, that word development, is so deeply scripted into how academic knowledge has organized itself uh, in the social sciences particularly, um, that undoing that has to take in the epistemic front as well as like more material uh, discussions of how that is taken forward. And it, I mean, in our first year lecture in the Intro to Global History course, we began the week on sugar and slavery with an example from uh, David Cameron going and telling the Jamaican Prime Minister, well, we've got some development aid for you. We're gonna give you money to build a prison, right? <laughs> This is really happened, right? This is the last big benevolent gift of Britain to <coughs> Jamaica, which is money to build a prison so that Britain can deport Jamaican nationals uh, because it can't do so in a safe legal way at the moment because it wants to, uh, you know, because it'll get sued. Um, but this is development aid. This is for your own good. So that's an example of how the language has become twisted and ways in which we can kind of concretely deal with that concept of reparation. I'm mindful that there may be more questions. Um, we're coming up to 8 o'clock. We did start at 10 past. I don't know how um, others feel about carrying on and having one more question. Are we allowed to do that? Or nah? Mine's not necessarily a question. It's more of a point. I don't think the colonizer is going to work. I think patching is going to be better. Because look, in terms of the games world, let's, put it, let's call it a game, yeah? The game's the game. The game's already made. 
game's a game, innit? But every few months or whatever, whatever, a patch is gonna come that fixes the bug. You know what I'm saying? So I think patching more than decolonizing, you know what I mean? is, is the way forward, innit? You know what I mean? I can't really see us like decolonizing, like what is it that we're trying to decolonize and where is it going from there? You know what I'm saying? So it's, yeah, I think the patch, you know what I'm saying, as opposed to decolonizing. Uh, I would so say. I would say take a hammer to the PlayStation. <laughs> but take your point. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, question: Are we are we allowed saying? I don't know if we're we're taking the piss or not. Yeah. Okay. So um, any other questions? I see one here, one here, and one at the back. Two at the back. So let's take those four. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm doing my dissertation, um, which is kind of been like a personal experience on campus for Goldsmith. So we had like um, one of our, um, I think she was a welfare, someone to do a welfare position in Goldsmith and she arranged a BME event and it kind of caused um, controversy because, well, there's lots of like controversy because of her using her white passing privilege in order to represent BME problematic in itself, but um, it kind of led me to base my dissertation on it. So my dissertation is basically looking at how whiteness manifests itself by alienating and policing the other in student spaces. So you guys have kind of touched upon that, but I wanted to go beyond the curriculum and student um, activities that happen on campus. I wanted to see how what impact it has on POCs as whiteness being a power structure, as Mira has already said, that it's a given category. So what impact does it have on POCs and their attainment or their behavior? if that makes sense. Um, there, were, there were two hands um, over there. Right, my understanding of the decolonization would be that the truth is told about certain things. So basically the easiest thing is for the elements that represent white supremacy or whiteness just admit what they've done in the past and own it. All they have to do is own it. They don't even actually have to pay the money back. If they own what they did, because a lot of people around the world think that the West is famous for greatness. The greatest thing they did was brutalize and dehumanize the African and also to a certain degree the Asian man, the Indian man, and also to destroy the American Indian nation. So it's just a matter of telling the truth, but I, I don't really know if the powers that be are ready to do that. And what happens when they say they're not gonna do that? You know, there's been revolutions before and stuff. People are very not into that now, but some people are into that because some people haven't had a fair shot, so they don't mind. The most extreme is when people do suicide bombings and stuff like that. Obviously, that's an extreme form of it. But people have had enough, and, you know, well, how do you think it's going to resolve? Because talking's good, but they don't listen because they know that we talk a lot and they just don't listen and don't do anything. So what's your plan for when, you know, talking's not doing anything and they've told you just get lost? Then what do you do? Um, so, this idea of, of inside the university and outside the university or a boundary be, between the, the inside and outside, I wonder if there's some way that could be um, torn down um, or, or at least made a bit more, um, <coughs> more fluid. Um, so when you think of actually how do, what process 
what kinds of people are able to actually come here, um, either feeling like they're able to take on debt or saving up money or just convincing people to, uh, or take a year out of work or convincing um, someone to actually just let them in. Um, I think actually, yeah, having, having more diverse people actually coming into the university and you know, even having people who just say out of the blue, I don't even feel like what you're saying is English and having to translate that to, to other ways of seeing the world or other ways of speaking is a way of decolonizing because it forces us to say, oh, we're getting way up in our, our heads and, and we're, we're, we've abstracted to the level where, where we're speaking a completely different language. And I think that's a problem. And to be confronted with that by bringing in um, people who are more disadvantaged, who, are, who don't have the opportunity to think in these ways would be a really good way of decolonizing the university. So I don't know what you think about that. I think I saw a hand around the middle here, but I can't... In the middle. I think it's the guy, the guy in the black jacket. Was there another hand? If so, put it up again. Otherwise, we'll take that round. Okay. Um, sure. Um, yes, absolutely. Just in relation to that, uh, to that last question on on um, on diversification um, and making the boundaries um, that mark the university, that demarcate the university, less sort of rigid and more fluid. Um, an explicit aim, so, so the Roads Must Fall movement, if I can start there, uh, within Oxford is kind of founded on, on three pillars. Um, one, um, which is sort of represented by the issue around the statue, is, is, is tackling iconography, tackling um, the colonial iconography that's replete within the university and trying to put it in a more um, historical and even-handed and critical context. Um, the other pillar is, is around the curriculum um, and trying to, to tackle the hegemony of whiteness within the curriculum. Uh, and then the third issue has been on representation. And I'd, I'd say it's actually not just about increasing representation within the student body, but also within the, uh, within the faculty. Um, so for example, um, at Oxford, there is only one full professor who is black. Um, and this is a profound problem because I think that the, the kind of reproduction of the very dynamics we're tackling penetrate all the way through. The racialized um, hierarchy of society is, is mirrored in the kind of racialized rankings of people within the university. So yeah, I, I, I fully agree, and that is an explicit part of, of what a lot of this activism is about. Thanks, Abraham. Um, yeah, so the, the question about um, white supremacy admitting its its culpability and responsibility. Um, I recently read the uh, 2007 commemoration of the bicentennial of the abolition of slavery debates in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, um, they're publicly accessible documents. And what's striking is that even though many MPs um, acknowledge, as they have to, because the historical record is so clear, Britain's culpability for slavery, those debates are full of moments of uh, attempts to mitigate Britain's culpability for slavery. And the way in which these forms of mitigation work is to say, well, Africans were involved in the slave trade as well, 
or well, there were white people who were who were who were very good and led the struggle for abolition. Uh, Vereen Shepherd calls this Wilberforce mania, and there was a lot of this in 2007 in different parts of Britain. Or, you know, this took place uh, 10 generations ago. Vince Cable says, oh, this took place 10 generations ago. There's nothing we can do about these things, um, and so on and so forth. So I think the point the questioner made about white supremacy not willing to even acknowledge that this happened, the full extent of culpability, let alone agree to material redistribution, is, is absolutely correct. And you only have to look at those debates for evidence of that unwillingness. Um, the point about the inside-outside blurring the university boundary, I absolutely agree. I think there are many different opportunities for doing this. One is, of course, access and the access programs that universities run. I think too often as a sort of greenwashing uh, to make it look like they are more accessible than they were, we need to make those programs much more real in, in the sense of giving them um, content and, and, and actually changing those numbers. But I also think we have some strategic opportunities that look irritating on the surface but can be used for radical purposes. So the REF impact criterion is one of these. Uh, it's, it comes to us as a sort of neoliberal requirement. If you want money from the government, you need to demonstrate impact in wider society. But actually, that's quite a good idea if we reimagine what this impact could be, who we want to have impact for, and so forth. It doesn't have to mean that knowledge is always instrumental and narrow in its purposes uh, if we are imaginative enough to seize that requirement and make it something else. So this is the opposite of the earlier concern about being co-opted by neoliberalism. I think we can also co co-op neoliberalism to do other things. Um, yeah, I maybe just respond to two things. On the patching thing, I think um, what I was saying earlier was that decolonizing is like patching, right? You, because the nature of the game, as you say, is so fundamental that you can't fix it all at once, and that's, that's um, clearly true. Um, but this week, maybe we divest from detention, and next week we change the syllabus, and the following week uh, we do our access programs and then the week after that we appoint more staff and then the week after that we en engage more with the communities and like you know this is the way that we do it's a process it's not like a, we've got this idea of what the endpoint looks like and and we do that so um, yeah I think the patching metaphor is is really good but sometimes you change operating system as well right <laughs> <laughs> I see it's like it's, it's forward-oriented activity. It's saying... Because we, 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 we the human beings, we're built to go forward, and mm. that's, that's our thing, just like, take te technology, for example. Like, we've become too fast, one. You know what I mean? What? Can you, you not imagine right now that we just took internet off the whole set? <laughs> How are you all going to live? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the PSN, what was the PlayStation Network? It went down for what? A couple of whatever. People lost their minds. <laughs> 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 so, that's, that's my whole point, you know what I mean? So, it's like, look, we're here now, innit? And our journey. 
Um, uh, okay, so two, it was going to be one thing, but now it's two. Um, first of all, I guess it's, it's important not to have a, like a linear view of history. Like, although we feel like technology is always going forward, we still have no idea how they built the pyramids. Um, so, you know, empires rise and fall and so on and so forth. But I think the important thing about, I don't know if the guy's left now, about what do you do when they don't listen to your words, right? Because we need to be about action. Like we need actions as well as words. But I think there are a myriad of examples of what to do. Um, I think probably the best, some of the best are in South Africa, what we've seen with the Fees Must Fall campaigns, where, is it 16 universities in South Africa were shut down? Completely shut down, so non-operational universities. If, if you use people power, if you use people's bodies to shut down an institution so that it can no longer function, eventually they have to come to the negotiating table. And we can see that in other examples as well. So, yeah, and that's it. Okay, um... Thanks, everyone. Um, it's been a great session. It's been a really great discussion, in my, in my um, opinion. I hope you felt the same. Um, yeah, please do check out Decolonizing Our Mind Society. This is the first of many activities part of the wider project of decolonizing SOAS. In terms of the practical question of what do we do next, that's still yet to be defined, and you can very much be part of that by getting in touch with people from Decolonizing Our Mind Society who are really driving this. Um, but yeah, we'll leave it there. Thanks um, to all the panelists and thanks to all of you um, for coming. Thanks. <laughs>